I'm bothered. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. <laughs> this sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophies. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. We've advanced to a different chapter in America's gun violence epidemic, where we're now at the point in the story where people are shooting and killing each other for honest accidents, neighborly requests, and perceived slights. The word of the week is fear. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Ha. Yeah. Let me begin in Kansas City, where 16-year-old Ralph Yarrow accidentally rang 84-year-old Andrew Lester's doorbell. Yarl was attempting to pick up his siblings, but went to the wrong address, which was just a block away from the correct address. After Yarl, who is black, rang the doorbell, Lester, who is white, shot through his locked glass door. Lester told police he thought Yarl was trying to break into his house, since, you know, it's a hallmark of burglars to ring the doorbell before politely asking if they could break in. He shot Yarl in the head first, and then when Yarl was on the ground, he shot him again. Lester also told police, and let me know if this sounds familiar, that he was, quote, scared to death, and he also overestimated that Yarl was over six feet tall when he's actually 5'8 and weighs 140 pounds. Also in upstate New York, a 20-year-old woman was killed by a 65-year-old after her and her friends accidentally pulled in the wrong driveway while looking for a friend's house. And just last week, five people were killed, including an eight-year-old boy after a confrontation with a neighbor. The suspect was shooting his gun in his front yard, and the victims asked him to stop shooting his gun because it was disturbing their baby. He told his neighbors he could do what he wanted, and that quickly advanced to the suspect entering their home and opening fire. This violence, the endless gun control debates, have long worn out my spirit. There are mental health issues, equity issues, racism issues, poverty issues, and yes, on some level, all of those are contributing factors to gun violence. But every developed nation has the same problems that we do. The difference is they don't make it easier to buy a gun in those atmospheres. But beyond that, there's a psychology here in America that is noticeably different than in other places. The country is overrun with two particularly toxic traits that are a bad combination for a country that has over 400 million guns. Andrew Lester's grandson essentially described his grandfather as a racist, someone who consumed a steady diet of Fox News all day, every day, and he believed what he was being fed. Beyond Fox, I'm sure he was inundated with the same images most Americans are, images of black and brown people constantly engaged in criminal activity or shown in a light that makes us appear to be threatening. The five people who were killed in Texas were Hispanic. The suspect also is Hispanic. And the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, could not wait to call the victims illegal immigrants, his exact words, and point out the suspect also was undocumented. Never mind, one of the victims, from what we know so far, is someone who was legally here in the country. Not that it matters. Y'all see the game, though. The underlying but very obvious message is that this is what undocumented people do in our country. They kill one another. What's particularly striking about some of the people who are arming up and preparing for God knows what, they live in some of the safest communities in America. Not everybody, but a lot. 
the 20-year-old who lost her life for pulling in the wrong driveway. That happened in Hebron, New York, which is upstate New York. According to the most recent crime grade index, this particular area of upstate New York is safer than 90% of the community in the United States. It received an A grade for crime because a crime occurs there once every 34 days and is typically related to vandalism. In just about every poll over the last year, it's been revealed that most Americans believe crime is up where they live and they believe crime in general is out of control. So does the perception meet reality? The answer is not really. According to the Justice Department's Bureau of Justice Statistics, violent crimes have been pretty much falling rapidly since 2012, with the exception being 2020 to 2021, when it remained stagnant. This has pretty much been the story everywhere. Anecdotes sometimes aren't a great way to prove what's perception and reality. But as someone who grew up in the 90s, I can tell you today's crime is not the same as yesterday's crime. I was part of the crack generation. And while statistics support my experience, I know the reason we're more fearful of each other, why we're more dug into hurting each other, is because we're being conditioned on a daily basis to believe nobody matters. Between social media and the news, we've convinced ourselves that we're a far more barbaric country than we actually are. The problem is that it's given us a built-in excuse to be shitty toward one another, to not care about each other. Shooting at a DoorDash driver who accidentally went to the wrong address is normalized. Shooting at people because of road rage just becomes the price of freedom. For a nation that sometimes likes to pride itself on its togetherness, our selfishness as a country knows no bounds. We see strangers as enemies. Now, I'm not naive. There are bad people, bad characters. Crime is a reality, a difficult one. But I'm left to wonder about what we're becoming and where this is all leading us. Other than in a deeper pit of fear. The word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest today is described as a scholar activist, and regardless of how she is described or how she chooses to describe herself, she is one of the foremost critical thinkers in America. She has done some amazing scholarship and initiatives around black culture and black girls and women. Being able to speak with people like her is a big reason I created this space on Unbothered. I like to talk with smart people and people who make me think. And you are about to meet one. Coming up next on Jamel Hill's Unbothered, Dr. Yaba Blake. So, Dr. Blake, we were just talking off air about the fact that we are both Sagittarius. You're 1212, I'm 1221. Whole lot of twos working there. <laughs> yes. Magical numbers. So let me uh, ask you this before we dive uh, deep into um, this interview. Are you somebody, did you get separate gifts your whole life or did people try to give you do that one gift shit or what? Oh, no, no. I got separate gifts. See? We were doing that. <laughs> See what I'm saying? <laughs> I am a I'm a pretty chill person and everything. But the one way you can really cross me is if you give me one gift and say it's for both. Oh, no. yeah. It's too far apart. Even with you, it's two separate situations. Exactly. And I was very lucky because my grandmother, her birthday was 1222. So she's a Capricorn, but she growing up, they always one gifted her. So she made it known to everybody in the family. And she certainly practiced this as well. Don't you sit up here and give my grandbaby one gift like it's supposed to count for everything. 
Yes, I know that's right. Yeah, so I appreciated that. And I tell my husband that too when we started dating. I was like, you give me one gift, this relationship <laughs> really might be over. <laughs> Yeah, it's two separate things. It is two separate things. Uh, well, I am so excited to have this conversation because like some folks, uh, I discovered you through Instagram and seeing some of your clips reposted on other people I know who follow you. And we have a mutual friend and I know uh, Abby Wambach too, knew her from my days at ESPN. <laughs> so when you, Abby and Glennon had that conversation, it really struck me in so many ways because that is the type of conversation that really needs to take place between black women and white women. But we'll, we'll get into all of that in a moment. But first, I want to ask you a question that I ask every guest who appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And that is, when did you become unbothered? I feel like the unbothering was a process of sorts, but I can say that I became most unbothered when I left academia. And it's even interesting even saying those words, left academia, because there's a part of me that still wants to hold on to the possibility that I'll go back and I'll be connected. But my experience in academia just, it, it wasn't for me. I got a PhD in Black Studies and you know, for most of us who are trained in academia, the one thing they talk to us about in terms of a career path is a tenure track position. And I never got a tenure track position. I did a whole bunch of things. I did a lot of teaching and some admin um, and kept, you know, throwing my CV out there to get a tenure track position. And I never got one. But what I also recognize in that process is that I, the way I do things is not the way academia does things. And that has to be okay. So it was a matter of, am I going to change who I am and do things differently to fit? Or am I going to find another way to do it? And what's so crazy about it, it was COVID actually that opened the door for me to do things differently. I left my last position and I knew I was not going to be in academia for at least a year. I, I thought I was going to give myself a year to figure things out. And then COVID hit and it was like, oh, well, then we all hustling, <laughs> right? We're all figuring it out. And that freedom to do the work that I do and the ways that I want to do it for the people I want to do it for and still get some level of visibility. I think that's when I became unbothered. I became unbothered by, you know, whoever it is you think Dr. Blay is supposed to be or how Dr. Blay is supposed to talk or what she's supposed to talk, like all of those expectations about a public intellectual or a PhD or whatever, I get to throw those away for the most part. So I think that's when I started becoming unbothered. It's still a process. So uh, because it, it seems like um, given the, the high level conversations that you have and, and the topics and the range of topics in which you discuss and the content you're, you're also creating, it seems like you were unbothered from birth. <laughs> right? I, I mean, I, you know, I was trying to be humble. A little oh, bit. Okay. <laughs> I mean, to some degree. I mean, it could be the Sag energy. Yeah. It could be also that I think I've had a lot of freedom to find my way. My parents are first, you know, they are immigrants. I'm first generation Ghanaian born and raised in New Orleans. And so there was a lot of stuff my parents didn't quite know. And so I had to figure some stuff out myself. I had to get support um, from other folks, you know, other communities as well. And so I think there was a little bit of freedom in that as well. Because I didn't have, you know, my, my parents were over my shoulder in a lot of ways, a lot of cultural things, you know, making sure that I remained Ghanaian as far as they were concerned. But a lot of other kinds of stuff that was happening generationally, especially, I had to figure that out on my own. So, 
Maybe that's part of it. I'm not sure. So how would you describe the season that you're in now? It's scary. And I think it's scary because this is not what I thought 48 would look like. I thought I would have my shit together, whatever that means. And what I'm recognizing is that nobody does. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, whatever I thought it meant to be grown, I'm still growing. It's scary, but it's also freeing because I don't know what's next. But I'm actually okay with that. And it's actually exciting. Like, I feel like I, I'm also a Gemini rising. So I reserve the right to change my mind always. <laughs> Whereas, you know, thinking of my mother, who's anxious about the idea, like you got this degree and you worked and you quit that. And you got this degree and then you worked and then you quit that. And then you went and got another master's and a, a PhD. And then you quit. Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm doing me. And I don't see any of that as time wasted. I don't see any of that. I don't have any regrets about that because I feel like each step of the way just helped to build and develop another piece of me, you know? So it's scary, but it's freeing. I'm open. I'm open to see what's next. So how is, and I love that you use this phrase to describe this particular season, but how is your rent a Negro season going? <laughs> I call it Negro Employment Month. It's Negro um, Employment Month? Okay. Right. <laughs> and then just real quick, before you answer the question, for those listening, if you have no idea what we're talking about, is there is a stretch. For me, it is January to the end of March, because January, it kind of kicks off with the observance of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s a holiday. Then you have Black History Month, then it's Women's History Month. Yes. And what happens is that if you're in this space where you speak about racial issues or you have the the wide-ranging expertise that Dr. Blay does, all the universities, all the corporations, they all want you to come in and speak about where we are now, race relations and diversity and equity and inclusion and all those little buzzwords. So while... Right now, it's a good time for us financially. It's also a very draining time because like, I haven't seen anybody but my husband in February. Like I've just, I've been at four or five different universities. I've been, I've been on a stroll, as they say. So yeah. Dr. Blake called this Rent-A-Negro, but you have since upgraded it to <laughs> Negro Employment Month. So how did your Negro Employment Month go? That would be February. And we're at the beginning of March as of the recording of this podcast. I think I share that same stretch as you do, that MLK holiday through the end of March, for the most part, for me, thankfully, air quotes, um, it ended a little bit early. I'm, I'm, I'm free and clear as of right now. So I didn't really get too many um, gigs for Women's History Month. But to be honest, something different about this year, it wore me out. It wore me out. Like by February 8th, I was like, I'm sick of this shit. I've had enough. I don't want to anymore. But, and I said this very honestly on Twitter and shared it on Instagram. If I'm a hundred percent honest, I earn probably 75%, 80% of my annual income during this stretch. So it makes me feel like on the one hand, there was a time where, you know, and even this year, I was most wonderful time of the year. Here we go, y'all. It's about to be Black History Month. Let's get it. I'm usually very excited for this time, you know? By February 8th, I was over it, you know? Because it felt like it was this dance between I want to do it. I love us. I love celebrating us, right? Then it felt like I have to, you know? And so something about the have to 
do it was taking the joy out of it. But then also, and I think this is something that I became more aware of with COVID, with, you know, hashtag Black Lives Matter, with everybody now wanting to be an anti-racist, that whole stretch through the pandemic, right? Where everybody wanted to be quote unquote woke. Maybe that's not the language they use, but whatever. It just made me, I just started side-eyeing people. Like, do you really want to do this work or do you want credit for having done it? Do you really want to do this work or do you just want a gold star? Do you, it's part of the reason I was just having this conversation with my assistant. Folks like to use the language of training. Don't ever use the word training when it comes to me coming to speak to you, consult with you, talk. I'm not training you in anything because what happens is folks think that in 45 minutes with 15 minutes Q&A, you done fixed everything. Or you get to put my name on your website and say, we had Dr. Blake come in and train us. What did I train you in? In 45 minutes, in an hour, right? And so I just feel like I'm not going to use the word sensitive. I think I was just hyper aware this season. And it, it was just annoying, if I can be honest. And so I use that opportunity in, in some of the uh, audiences to just say that, like, I'm over this. I'm tired. Like, can I stand up here as a Black woman who's getting paid to talk to you to tell you that I'm tired, that I'm annoyed, that I'm seeing through this stuff and I don't really know what this means? You know, can you hear me say that as a Black woman? Do you honor me saying that I'm tired or should I feel honored and privileged to have the opportunity to serve you? So in, in 2020, as you're well aware, um, in terms of speaking, even though we were largely confined to our homes, that was probably my busiest speaking year ever, ever. Because of course we had when tragedy strikes, because we could never do these things preventatively. They always have to be in reaction to something. And it was in reaction to Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. And of course, George Floyd was the tipping point. And we were having allegedly a racial reconciliation. There were conversations being had in this country that hasn't that haven't been had. Right. When you look across the landscape, what conversation are we having about race right now? I don't know that we've ever had good enough conversations about race. And the reason why I'm saying this as an educator, I feel like public conversation should be building upon some grounding, some base level understanding that we all share, right? Before we go into a public conversation to kind of work some things out. At the base level, the average person doesn't have an understanding of race, let alone racism, let alone inequity and white supremacy and all the things that we actually need to be dealing with. So I can't, I can't assume that we having the same conversation, especially when you got folks throwing out terms like reverse racism, we're not having the same conversation. You know what I mean? And so I don't, I don't know what conversation we're having in this moment. It seems topical, superficial, um, temporary, temporal, I, I don't know what these conversations are going to yield in the long term because we're still afraid to say the things that need to be said. You have dedicated much of your career to very specific work, very hard work when you're talking about race, identity, gender, discussing colorism, like so many different things. What do you feel like was the contributing factors that led you to this particular work? My life my being, my body, you know, as I said, I'm first generation Ghanaian, born and raised in New Orleans. And so for folks who can't see me, I'm very dark skinned. I have kinky hair. 
I grew up in New Orleans. And if you know anything about the history of New Orleans, colorism is at the foundation, being a port city, especially, you know, a large population historically and contemporarily, a large population of the black community um, is intergenerationally mixed race. You know, and so there's a lot of power and privilege that is connected to that. So for me, even as a child, I I knew I was dark skinned very early on because people reminded me like it was a point of conversation. You know, you so black, you so black, you so black. And so it was always at the core of my identity, but it didn't really make sense because, again, I'm, 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 I'm in two spaces. I have a very Ghanaian home and community, you know, and then going to Catholic school, living in New Orleans, you know, it was still black, but it was a, a range of hues, if you were. I felt normal at home and with my folks. I didn't feel so normal once I got to school or once I left the house. And so I feel like I've always lived with this question of what does this mean? Right. What does it mean to be dark skinned? What does it mean to be dark skinned and kinky haired as a girl? You know, why do folks who are lighter skinned with a different texture hair have more privilege? What's that about? I've always been asking these questions. And so I took the opportunity, you know, in school to do more research and to, to dig into it, to, to try and understand it. So I think the, the, the beauty of having uh, gotten a degree in black studies, particularly at Temple is having the duty to focus on myself, the duty to center my work. And when I say myself, not just me my in, as an individual, but I have a duty to do work that impacts the lived experiences of people who live and look like me. So how would you say growing up in New Orleans shaped how you saw race and identity? I think it was, just, again, at the forefront. It wasn't something that I could sweep under the rug. It wasn't something that just was. It was something that, again, I was always coming back to a question of, is this because I'm Black? Is this because I'm dark? It made me, and again, I don't want to use the language of hypersensitive, and we can talk about that because the thing that becomes annoying, particularly when we talk about race and when we talk about colorism, is people try to make these individual personalized stories and not systemic institutionalized realities. So when I say hypersensitive, I'm, I'm fidgeting because that's the kind of shit people have said to me. You being sensitive. I'm not being sensitive. <laughs> I'm telling you about my lived experience. I'm telling you what is. And so let me say I've been hyper aware. I've always been critical of, you know, that question of is this because or what is this because or what is happening underneath? Never just what's on the surface. Now, uh, you have a book that you self-published back in 2013, One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race. And it's a a beautiful book because it's telling stories from different women and girls all across the diaspora. and Frankly, it's a lot of the stories we don't often hear because I think there's an assumption of blackness that we all have. You know, one thing that's very evident in both this book and just in the work you do, period, is like, I I think that we really inevitably pitfall into these really dumb conversations whenever we try to define masculinity or femininity or blackness. How do we move away from this? What are you mentality? that we all seem to have. Like just by looking at you, we can tell like, oh, you're this kind of black person or you're not even a black person or whatever. And that's what I loved about your book is that it's showing so many different shades and hues that it it forces you to think about blackness in a different way. But how do we move out of that sort of what are you mindset that we're in? That's again, there's so many layers. There's so much. My thing is there's so much education that we deserve to have that we've been robbed of the opportunity to have. So it puts us at a disadvantage to even be able to have these conversations. Okay. And and I say that because 
I wrote that book for black people. This wasn't a National Geographic attempt to show the world what black people look like. This was me writing in response to black folks like myself. Right. And I talk about this in the book. I definitely had a particular relationship with folks who were light skinned and folks who looked more visibly mixed race. What was that relationship? I wasn't fooling with them insofar as I thought they weren't fooling with me. So since you've already created a distinction between you and me, let me save myself and not even try. So my community looks like this because historically <laughs> my my receipts show that these are the people who support me. These are the people who love me. These are the people who check for me. My experience shows that y'all don't. So why bother? Right. That was my experience growing up in New Orleans. And then I moved up north and met all kinds of folks. I didn't know Puerto Ricans in New Orleans. <laughs> What's that? Right. So meaning folks who are mixed race and Puerto Rican and from all over the diaspora who are outwardly identifying as black, whereas in New Orleans, there are folks who are Creole who won't identify as black. I was confused. So I was trying to literally understand what is this thing called blackness throughout the world as an identity, not just about race, because race, you know, the only purpose of race is to support racism. So race is a historical construct that was projected onto all of us. And then we did something with it. So it was me trying to figure out what is the thing that we did with it. And so the book, again, I wrote that book and present that book to us because I'm saying to us, we have to be clear about what blackness is and not in a gatekeeping sense of you can come and you can't come, but more so in a political sense of who is the we when we talk about we, who is the community, who is involved in the community when we're doing this work, right? Who, com who, who comes and who doesn't? And so trying to understand what blackness means for us, strategically speaking, even, right? And so the conversations of like, what are you and who, we just in a really interesting place. I think I could go all over the place with this, Jamel. Language is so important to me, you know, and I see this on both sides of the water. There are lots of Ghanaians, for example, lots of West Africans, for example, who won't identify as Black because they conflate Black with African-American. Right. There are a lot of mixed race people who won't identify as black. There are a lot of people throughout the diaspora who won't identify as black because they conflate it with African-American. I am black. Capital B. My understanding of blackness is a pan-Africanist one. And I, it comes, you know, Marcus Garvey, Kwame Nkrumah, the folks who were trying to get us to understand blackness as a political identity. And so the question is, what function does your identity serve in the context of white supremacy? Because white folks are clear. And again, I'm fidgeting because I don't also want us to be in a place where we're comparing what we do and how we do to how and what white folks do, because they are not the model, right? But if this is the game, how are we going to play it? We got to know what the pieces are, right? We got to know what the strategy is or what the goals are. And so in that way, whiteness serves a particular function. Unfortunately, it's been to oppress all folks who are not white, but whiteness serves a particular function. What function does blackness serve? What good does it do me to say, oh, I'm Ghanaian, Jamel, and you're, you're African-American. We're not the same. Does that serve me in any way? Not when the police could give a shit. They're not making those distinctions. Not just in the ways in which oppression functions in this world. Nobody is making those specific categorizations but us.
And that's our attempt to gain favor in the context of white supremacy. That's not real. We all black to them. <laughs> so well, that's why I think it was great that you called your book One Drop. And for a lot of people out there who may not be familiar with what the One Drop rule is, as you mentioned, education is part of us kind of unpacking this. Can you explain what the One Drop and a you know brief little history about what the One Drop rule was in this country? Sure. So again, as I said earlier, the only function of race is to support racism, right? And at that time, historically, folks, and by folks, I mean white folks, wanted to be clear about who was white and who was not, because whiteness is where freedom lived, right? If you were white, you were free. If you were black, you were not. I need to know who's free and who's not, right? And so at a time, fresh off the boat, if you will, white, black, it was clear, visibly speaking. But as we also know, European enslavers had a thing for raping African women. And so here come mixed race babies. Well, what do we do with these mixed race babies? Are they white? Are they black? Are they free? Are they enslaved? So we start coming up, and let me stop saying we, because it was not me. <laughs> white folks start coming up with all kinds of classifications and understandings and rules and projections about who's free and who's not, who's white and who's not. So we see a lot, and I go through this in the book, but there's an evolution of the rules, if you will. Quite simply, it is to say that any child with any, let's say one drop, they call it the white one drop rule, rule of hypo descent. If I go into your family tree and I go back five generations, if even one person on that family tree is black, you are black. Because the goal was to save the purity. And that's the language that they use. They needed to save the purity of the white race. And literally it's like one drop is enough, right, to destroy that. And so one drop of black blood is enough to make somebody black, whether we can see it or not. And if you have that one drop, then you are not white, not free. Which is really interesting when you consider the number of white people who do have that one drop. <laughs> I'm like, so y'all was going to eliminate yourselves. <laughs> right. There are a lot of folks. If, if we rely upon that rule, there are a lot of folks who are passing. I opened the book with an example of a woman, Susie Guillory Phipps in the state of Louisiana, who lived her life as a white woman and at the age of 43 applied for a passport to go on vacation with her husband. And she needed a copy of her birth certificate, which for whatever reason she didn't have. And she got a copy of her birth certificate and it said she was colored. And she's like, oh, no, it's been a mistake. Y'all sent me the wrong birth certificate. And they're like, no issue. So she sued the state of Louisiana and lost and appealed and lost again. So if she's still alive on paper, she is colored. But if you look at her, looks like a white woman. And so, you know, what's interesting growing up in New Orleans, and I know a lot of folks who can admit to the same thing. I'm not going to call it a game, but we have a specific skill. We can see that drop. You care what color your skin is and how you trying to move to this world. And I feel like maybe it's a defense mechanism historically, but it's like, mm -hmm, we see you. We see how you're trying to pass, but you want us because that's what the law said. You lucky enough to be free, but we see you and we see the drop, you know, whether it's, you know, the shape of the face, the shape of the nose, a little tincture, a curl in the hair. We find a way to point that drop out. We recognize one another. But again, part of what I'm doing is saying, OK, we realize how messed up legally, right? How messed up historically this is. Are we going to accept the one drop rule? 
as a defining characteristic of blackness or are we going to not make up our own? Well, how are we defining blackness? What is it going to mean for us to be black? Who gets to be black and who doesn't? You know, this conversation reminds me of some of the conversations that have been had about Meghan Markle <laughs> in the sense there seemed to be a huge swath of people. I don't think it was our people that didn't know she was black. And I was like, how? <laughs> <laughs> right. We see you. I was like, I was confused. I was like, I, I just see a black woman. Like, I am. I, did I miss something? <laughs> but you know what else, too, Jamel? Generationally speaking, there's new language now. I think at least for me, we didn't have certain like there weren't there wasn't the option to not be black. You see what I'm saying? And so now moving forward, we've got biracial, we've got multi-generationally mixed, we've got mixed, we've got all these words that new generations have access to. We didn't have access to that language. So what is that? There was nothing else for Meghan Markle to be. But now new generations have new language. So perhaps they saw the potential for her to be all these other things that we didn't. And then you see her mother. Yes. That's what I was like. You see her. I was like, yes, this is a black woman. But again, generationally, we didn't have, there was no other option. Yeah. And and it, it does get to an interesting question because even I think we're both from the generation where mixed specifically meant black and white. Yes. Like it didn't mean that, you know, uh, Mexican or Puerto Rican or Dominican, none of those things. It just meant two things. You're mixed with black or white or you're neither. <laughs> so it's just like, okay. Yeah. But there are so many interesting uh, conversations that I, I want to talk to you about, Dr. Blaine, especially about some of your work, of course, about Professional Black Girl, which was a, a great concept that I really, really love. So a lot of more to talk to you about. And I'll ask you those questions on the other side. But for now, we'll just take a quick break and we'll be back with more from Dr. Blake. As I've shared before, for the first time ever, I'm going to be a maid of honor. My best friend is getting married in July and it is my job to make sure that my girl gets a proper send off into married life, which she did for me when it was my turn to walk down the aisle four years ago. Now, one of the cardinal rules of being a good maid of honor or a good maid of dishonor, as I like to call myself, is you have got to throw a bachelorette party for the ages. And I got a story to tell about how I did just that. Here was the mission that I chose to accept. 14 women, five days of fun. What is we going to do? The first three days we spent in Fort Lauderdale, and that was because Janet Demita Joe Jackson was opening her Together Again tour in Fort Lauderdale. Because Janet just so happened to be the bride's all-time favorite performer and singer. The adventure started on a Friday. We appropriately pre-gamed before the concert because yours truly secured about 20 bottles of liquor to last the weekend. We pre-gamed some more in the Sprinter bus on our way to the concert where we sang the most ratchet songs you could possibly imagine. And then it was finally time for the concert, which was exceptional. It was the fourth time I'd seen Janet Jackson. And as usual, she was electric and magnificent. And whatever adjective you want to use, that essentially means excellent. Now, a member of the bridal party happens to have some pretty deep connections, is famous. So she got us in a suite. And at one point I looked up and Mike Tyson, Venus Williams and Ludacris, who opened for Janet, were all in the same suite. 
But the best part was meeting Janet herself afterwards. She was so nice and sweet. And Lord, if that child still ain't Penny from good times to me. Even as the bride told her her entire life story within the first five minutes of meeting her, Janet was just so cute and so very awesome. Now, the night ended with us playing Uno because isn't that how all great nights end? And this was just night one. Day two featured a boozy brunch, a boozy exceptional dinner and sex classes. I brought in a sexologist whose specialty is, and this is a direct quote, science and ho shit. Shout out to Goody Howard, who you can find on Instagram at Ask Goody. She has virtual classes and this phrase will revolutionize your life. One knee up, one knee down. That's all I'm going to say. Go talk to Goody about it. Day three, we escaped Fort Lauderdale, but the party was not over. Next stop was the Dominican Republic. We had three beautiful villas, a full staff, which included a private chef, bartender, housekeeping. We had multiple pools, a hot tub. This property was absolutely incredible. It was big pimping on steroids. If you've seen the video, you know what I mean. We drank. We sang into the wee hours of the night. I brought in a DJ for a day party. We took all day boat trips, swam and snorkeled. We did all the things. It was a hell of a trip. It took years off my life organizing it. But the main thing was the bride was happy. Her liver probably isn't in great shape, but I like to think it was worth it. And now back to more with Dr. Yaba Blake. We were talking in the first half of this podcast about your book, One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race. Now, when you first self-published it back in 2013, why did you wind up choosing the self-publishing route for this book? Because I couldn't get a book deal. What's so interesting is I started the project and it started out as, you know, uh, something that was living on the web, on the web, Facebook, you know, social media was conversations that we were having and then sparked the interest of CNN. They reached out to me. I worked with Soledad O'Brien and helped to produce the last edition of Black in America. And that episode was based upon um, my work. And so, of course, folks are reaching out to me. I got a literary agent. They're like, oh, of course, you did a CNN doc. Folks are going to be eating this up. They're going to want it. And publishers were not convinced that a full color photography book would sell. And so they were trying to encourage me to take the photos out. And I'm like, we're having a conversation about skin color and race. Like, we need to see it. Right. Then they tried to convince me it would be cheaper to do black and white. And I'm like, I don't want to. Nobody picked up on it. So I'm like, you know, again, I don't know if this is how your SAG works, but my SAG works like you tell me I can't do it. I'm going to do it three times and take pictures. And so I had to do it myself. And so I did a Kickstarter. I did two Kickstarters. And the second Kickstarter, the goal was to raise, I want to say $30,000, raise that within two days. It was basically like set up as pre-orders for the book. And my community folks just really supported. They wanted to see the work come out and... Yeah, I published it myself. And then 10 years later, Beacon Press expressed interest. And I mean, that feeling, it wasn't so much about it getting published by a traditional publisher. As much as it was, I didn't have to make any edits. The only edit that was made was on the cover um, because I had a dual cover um, when I did it myself and the copyright date. There were no other edits. And that made me feel really good, which is to say that I had a vision. It's a thing I wanted to do. I did it. And it was good enough then to 10 years later, just be printed as is. 
I thought that was pretty dope. Given your your road with this book has got to mean a lot to you that this is the book that they tried to not make and it only seems to be growing stronger. <laughs> it feels really good. I, I saw an interview you did where you said something that, that struck me. You say a lot of things that strike me, but this one um, was at the top of the list. You said, if you really want to understand the lived experiences, the conditions of people of color, then you have to understand the grounds upon which whiteness was founded. What did you mean by that? <laughs> Again, like so many of these conversations about race, we, not me, but we as a society, we want to ignore, again, the foundations of race and why race was created as a category of distinction. You know, it's like when I think about diversity, equity and inclusion work, for example, I'm always quick to point out to people when we use the language of inclusion, understand what that means. Included in what? What's normative? Like when I think of inclusion, it's this big white bowl and now you want to sprinkle people of color, even that language of color. I never self-identify as a person of color, right? Because even the language of person of color centers whiteness. Whiteness is the norm and all of us are of color. We don't have a shared experience and we also don't have a shared relationship to whiteness. So what's that mean of color? And people don't even recognize how even in the ways they think they're being progressive, that it's still very much founded in white supremacist ideology. So before we can understand racism, we have to understand race. We have to understand the history of race. We have to understand the history of, of distinction. And we have to understand the history of white supremacy. So if you want to understand the lived experiences of black folks, you first have to understand the history of white supremacy. All of those things matter. I think it's, it's enraging to me that folks think that we should just be able to get over it. During Black History Month on my Instagram, I posted this graphic and I can't think of the, the agency that created it, but they're tagged in it. But the graphic is a historical timeline to show us from 1619 to now. My father moved to this country only Three years after the end of legalized segregation, 1964 was when legally segregation ended. And he came here in 1967 and I was born seven years after that. That's not that long ago, y'all. And so we talk about, you know, even the ways in which people approach black history and they want to talk about the MLKs. Few might talk about Malcolm X, but they want to talk about Rosa Parks. They want to talk about particular figures in the civil rights movement as if the civil rights movement is over. As if the civil rights movement was that long ago, it was not that long ago. So we have spent more time oppressed than we have allegedly free. And so why are we talking in this moment as if, and, and I say this even specifically to talk about white folks. Why do we expect for white folks not to be racist? It's their history. It's their upbringing. It's not that easy to just choose not to be racist. If that is the culture in which you are raised in, why do we think it's that easy to pick up a book and choose not to be racist anymore? That's going to take a lot of work. You talk about breaking generational curses. <laughs> that takes a lot of intentional work. You have to want to differently. It's not enough to get a gold star to go to DEI training. It's not enough to get a gold star for bringing Jamal Hill to your campus 
to speak during Black History Month. There's a lot of work that you have to do 365 to break that generational curse. I'm thinking about something you said in the first 30 minutes of this podcast when you talked about feeling tired during Black History Month. How much of that tiredness is related to the fact that it feels like we're in the middle of a deep regression? Some could argue we never left it. (laughs) Some could argue that for sure. But how much do you feel like your exhaustion, your mental exhaustion from these conversations is related to that? 100%. Maybe 92. (laughs) A lot. Um, And there are always moments because, you know, I'm an overthinker and I'm constantly thinking. And there are always moments where it's like, save yourself, sis. (laughs) Never mind. You know, I'm always going to do the work, of course. I'm always open to having the conversation, but I am not going to commit myself to trying to explain myself to people who are committed to not understanding. Never mind. You know, it's like Harriet said, everybody can't come. And so the exhaustion is not just, and and this is one thing I always want to point out when I talk about white supremacy, I'm not just talking about white people. Talking about an ideology. And so sometimes getting worn out is getting worn out by us. And even how we enter the conversation, uninformed, but ready to speak on behalf of the entire community. That wears me out too. Uh, I share that frustration, especially when it feels like we don't understand that there's too many of us that just want to repeat the same pattern of white supremacy. Absolutely. We don't actually want to end it as a ideology. We just want to get closer to it and have a better seat. Absolutely. And yes, I was like, yeah, of course. You know, that's why I've, I've told a number of black people, listen, I love making money. Don't get me wrong. But I know that capitalism is not going to save us at all. <laughs> it's not not a system that inherently has to oppress to work. <laughs> and guess who often is at the boot of that oppression is us. So it's not going to. The thing that oppressed us can't be the same thing that saves us. <laughs> Absolutely. And you, know, and you know, the thing that I, and again, I'm speaking it from the perspective of an educator at heart. It's became more clear to me during the pandemic and during COVID and during that moment of everybody wanted to be an anti-racist. What I recognize is that, again, that education piece, just because you have black skin does not mean you understand racism. And you know how many folks got paid to be anti-racist educators and ain't read a book? But because white folks are so (laughs) afraid of getting called out, if it's a black person who says they can teach me about racism, come on through. That was actually more enraging to me than anything. Because again, let's tie it all together. Capitalism, y'all not going to give us reparations, but we're going to take your DEI check. What qualifies you to speak about DEI? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. As much as I hate that language, what qualifies you? People talk about representation matters. Representation is not enough. As an educator, a lifelong educator, um, you see there is a nationwide movement, government-led, state government-led, to completely attack, undermine, ban uh, Black and queer history when It just I'm not even sure I can find the words to express how I feel seeing that in certain parts of the country. I know why the cage bird sings or beloved is banned by Toni Morrison in in school libraries and children don't have access to them through the educational systems. Yes, I know they can go to Barnes and Noble and go to Amazon. I get it. But that's not really the point. But as an educator, seeing this nationwide attack 
of these very critical black thought leaders. How does that make you feel? I had a moment where I was enraged, of course, like everybody. And then I think I had a moment of clarity to say, you know, this moment is just one of audacity. They're doing it in our faces now without apology. It's not to say that it's new. How many of us read those books ourselves in school? How many of our teachers were allowed to teach us those books in school? Most of us, much of what I know about Blackness, Black history, Black culture, if I didn't get it from my community, if I didn't get it from extracurricular activities or someone gifting me a book, I didn't learn about that in school. You know, and so I feel like this moment is one of audacity where folks are just unapologetic about their anti-Blackness. I don't know how much is actually shifting. It's, these are questions. I don't have answers. So of course it makes me feel enraged, but it also makes me want to say to us, if this is what they're doing in our faces, what are we going to do in response? Yes, we can fight them and try to make them do it. Do we have the capacity to teach our own children? Did you read Why the Caged Birds Sing? Let's start with ourselves. I'm not taking them off the hook, but I'm saying, as we fight, what are we willing to do? Are we willing to take a class as grown folks and have certain conversations and read new books? I promise you, if I ask the large majority of Black folks that sit in my audience, define racism. Most of them cannot do it. And it's not their fault. It's not shade. It's not shade. But it is to say, right? Isn't that a Sada Shakur quote? No one's going to give you the education you need to overthrow them? I think you might be right about that. All of this is by design. So again, white supremacy, think of a chessboard. Who are the players? What's our move? What's our move? They're making their moves. Oh, yeah. Boldly, bluntly, and then without apology. And it's only going to go further. I mean, I was really lucky growing up in Detroit because it's a very black city. Yes, it is. So most of my teachers growing up, yeah, we're all black. Nice. Right. So in the public education system. So February was just like, oh, this is just, you know, February 1st was like, oh, this is just Thursday because we we're learning about this stuff all year round right. because the black teachers in a black school district felt empowered to do that. They felt like that was part of the the education. But it wasn't until I got to college that I realized how many of us had had very few black teachers or certainly no male, no black male teachers. Absolutely. And so that education gap, you're right for us, is really missing about ourselves. Given the, the challenges of this work and what you're often experiencing and dealing with, what is it that keeps you going? What is it that still gives you that hope that like, maybe not today, but maybe one day, things will be a lot different? Jamal, I love black people. And I think when we talk about, you know, just thinking of your first question at that moment of becoming unbothered, I, I want to always keep in context that my life, our lives, evolution, process, right? We learn along the way. I love people. I've always loved Black people specifically. There came a time where I recognized I cannot save everybody. And I tap into, again, the spirit of Harriet. Everybody can't come. <laughs> right? So how am I going to save myself and save my energy? I'm not going to continue to do this work fighting white folks. I cannot do it. I will give some to that fight, but y'all not going to rob me of all my energy. I wasn't sent here to fight y'all. I was sent here to free us. Those are two different things. 
Now, somebody's going to do that work and give thanks for those people. But how can I how can I free us? And I do think for me as an educator, a lot of that is about education. So how can I share information simply? How can I encourage us to think critically? Let me pause and say, when you were speaking earlier and even setting up this question, Jamal, and talking about growing up in Detroit, and I grew up in New Orleans, I feel like we should acknowledge publicly how privileged and blessed we were to grow up in Black communities. And I think a lot of us do not acknowledge how much of a beautiful blessing that was. I have a nine-year-old granddaughter. Her school, she goes to a predominantly Black charter school here in Philadelphia, which is another blackity Black city. I had the honor of going to her Black History Month program a couple of weeks ago. And it just made my heart swell. Because you can always count on the black babies to come through with lift every voice and sing. They're going to recite some Maya Angelou. We had a, a few new schoolers giving us some rhymes. My baby, the third grade class, they sang Stevie Wonder's Happy Birthday. Like, we take that for granted. That is such an amazingly beautiful gift that we can give to our children. And I say that because I know so many of us, so many of my colleagues and my peers, and I get it. Please don't hear shade in this. There's so many of us who send our children to predominantly white spaces because we believe they're going to get a better education. And I get it in a city like Philadelphia. I get it. But also, can we please think about what we're robbing our children of? If for whatever reason you have to send your child to a predominantly white space, how are you supplementing that? Like we have to gift our babies blackness. I just think we have to. And for those of us who are uncomfortable doing so, that's where my questions come in. We think critically about that inner white supremacy. What is it in us that says our blackness isn't good enough or our blackness is something that we have to protect our children from rather than gifting them with it? I feel bad for those of us who don't know what a Black History Month program looks like in a black space. I feel bad for us who've never held an MLK fan. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, and so that's what I feel like my work is rather than fighting white folks. I'm not going to convince you about who we are. I want to convince us about who we are. That was really powerful. And I'm glad you said that because I often, when I give these talks (laughs) that we are paid to give, the one thing I, I talk very passionately about is being from Detroit. And I would only, the only way I can survive some of these predominantly white spaces I've been in is because of where I came from. Absolutely. Because I knew who I was when I left Detroit and went to Michigan State that has like 30 some thousand white people that I'm surrounded by and it's a brand new environment, you know, for me uh, or being a, a woman in a, a male dominated, white male dominated sports industry. The only way I survive those places is because I have held a church fan before. It was because I have been to vacation Bible school at a Baptist church. Like I, I know all about that. Right. Oh, you've been to the cookout. The cookout is not proverbial. It's not theoretical. You've been to the cookout. Been to it many, many years. Had to do E&J runs for my uncles. Yes. As soon as I was able to try. (laughs) I just feel like we we should be celebrating these things. And I think there are a lot of people who, maybe I'm not picking the right word, but for lack of a better word, there are a lot of folks who are ashamed of that part of us. It's part of the reason why I started Professional Black Girl, for example. Right. For all of the things that we project onto blackness as a negative. These are the things that made me who I am. I had my child, single mother at the age of 19, college student. And here I am. These things aren't necessarily the end of the world. 
it's who I am, right? I speak how I speak and I still have a PhD. I wear bamboos, I still have a PhD. I listen to hip hop, I still have a PhD. You see what I'm saying? Like these things aren't, I feel like folks, and I'm not talking about white folks. Again, I'm talking about us. From the way, the, the, the names we select for our children, thinking that if I give them a name that's too black, they might not be accepted in the broader society. We have naming traditions. We're going to throw those naming traditions away to, to gain access to spaces that don't even want us anyway. How do we hold on to ourselves? You know, and so for me, it's something I'm just passionate about. I feel like these, again, these are closed door conversations. Folks can watch if they want to, but to and for us, what are we doing? How do we hold on to ourselves? What is blackness ultimately going to mean if we're we just trying to blend? I'm okay with us. And I'm, I'm okay with preserving us. And by us, and again, I'm speaking as a Ghanaian American. So my lived experience is also quite different from a lot of folks. I'm talking about a pan-African diasporan blackness. Because we can connect those dots too if we have time, energy, and interest. I, I had the pleasure of going to, to Ghana, I think it might be two years ago. And I had a beautiful experience. Boy, I, I tell you, I could have ate my way through that whole country. <laughs> The food was exceptional and I love I love hot like spicy food is 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 my love language. Okay. And I also didn't know that y'all partied like that. I was like, "Oh, they trying to kill me." Like <laughs> <laughs> They know they know how to do it for real, but you know, it was the first time I'd ever been anywhere and we were there I think 8 days. I didn't see anybody white for 8 days. And I was like, "Nobody." And I was like, "This is <laughs> On one end, got to say, kind of remarkable. <laughs> Did not see one. It was just like we just out here in our many different vibes. And it was really a, such an affirming, life changing experience. It's not a vacation. I hate to call it that. It's an experience when you go to Ghana. I'm glad you pointed that out. I used to take students uh, to Ghana for study abroad and the white students would feel away because there would be Ghanaian children pointing to them, you know, and saying, oh, Brony, oh, Brony. Because they had never seen a white person before. You know, uh, it happens. I encourage all of us, if we can, if we have the opportunity to experience blackness in other parts of the world. Like, it's again, language being important is why I will not identify as a minority. I might be a statistical minority in this country, but I'm part of the global majority. White folks are outnumbered in the world. If you have a global perspective on your existence, this is but one experience, but like they are actually the minority, not us. I think that's an important point to, to make because we live under a, a high level of marginalization here. So we just hear constantly, you're only 13%, you're only 13%. And then you get outside of this place and you realize like, oh no, no, we got some numbers. Yeah. But I am curious because of your roots, because of your relationship with, with Ghana, is that a place or maybe some other place? Have you ever given thought to living elsewhere other than the States? Sure. But I also want to be clear um, about the sustainability of doing so. So I'm constantly thinking about it. I think a lot of folks are, are, are thinking about escaping the United States, if you will, for the experiences that we have here. And I just want to say is that you can't escape white supremacy. It might look different somewhere else. And so I want to be clear about that, too. It might not be this, but it's going to be something. 
It's very hard to escape white supremacy. So I have my own, you know, experiences with Ghana. People ask me all the time, are you going to move back to Ghana? I don't know. Because it actually hurts me more to experience certain things in Ghana than it does here. I, I expect it here, <laughs> you know, and I'm speaking more so specifically like it really bothers me the extent to which many Ghanaians will defer to white folks because I'm like, do you know who you are? Because again, we can talk about enslavement and white supremacy in the United States. We also need to be talking about colonization and colonialism and the impact of that, the aftermath of that. And so, yes, you know, I have a homeboy yesterday was Ghana's Independence Day. And so, of course, I'm always like, happy Independence Day. And I have a homeboy who's like, what what are we celebrating? So, yes, Ghana was the first African nation to gain freedom from colonial rule. But are we free? The colonial mindset still exists, maybe not as much as you think. All right, Dr. Blay, before I get you out of here, there's a game that I play with every guest who appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And that game is called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. It's very simple. I'll give you two choices. Okay. And you have to pick one. <laughs> and this is, this is where the controversy happens. I'm just letting you know. So regardless of everything you've said, here, this is where folks get in trouble. <laughs> First up, cheesesteaks or beignets? Beignets. Are you more of a sweet person than a savory person? I'm not. I'm very much a savory person, but you just asked me to pick Philly over New Orleans, so I had to go for New Orleans. <laughs> I did. Yep, I sure did. See? You already hip to it. You already hip to it. Pump it up or let's jam. <laughs> Pump it up. Like, I saw you make mention of that. I was like, y'all y'all know about them old school black products, black hair products. <laughs> no, pumping up was more my style because I was going for height right. and stacks. Less than was more so for edges and laying. I needed stiff. You needed the heights. And you had the asymmetrical too, didn't you? Oh, all kinds of asymmetricals, yes. <laughs> that was the one hairstyle I wanted, but my mother would never let me get it. Because, you know, afraid of whole, you got to shave half your head, all that. I was like, yes. But nevertheless, uh, she also put a jerry curl in my hair, but I'm still going to therapy over that. Listen, I'm going to mess you up. This is my third grade picture. Uh-oh. Look at that jerry curl. <laughs> <laughs> yes, jerry curl. Thank you. Were you a stay-free uh, girl or or was it? Right on curl. Right on curl. <laughs> okay. Um, Sisters of the Yam or Salvation, Black People in Love, two of Bell Hooks' very notable works. Why would you do this to me? Because yeah, I'm cruel. I'm going to go with Sisters of the Yam. I'm going to go with Sisters of the Yam. Sisters of the Yam. And finally, Jollof Rice or Fufu? Oh, why would you do this? You already know. <laughs> I'm going to go with Fufu. Now, can you make Jollof? You don't want my Jollof. <laughs> what? No, jollof, jollof requires skill and I concede. Like certain things, like everybody can't make the potato salad. Everybody should not make the jollof rice. I I have a rice thing. Jollof, jambalaya, anything requires the stew and the rice and everything to melt perfectly. I, I don't have the skill set for that. I'm a rice cooker and walk away kind of person. So that must mean a no on gumbo too. Oh no, I know my lady. <laughs> I'm going to leave the gumbo alone too. I mean, the jollof rice, like it looks very complicated, but let me tell you, every place I went to in Ghana, the jollof was, each place was better than the last. Oh yeah. 
Have you had Nigerian jollof? I have not. Don't do it. Wait, don't don't sit up here and tell me that you would pick Nigerian jollof rice over. No, no, no. I'm telling you not to do Nigerian jollof. Once you had Ghanaian jollof. That's it. The only folks that I'll give it to, because you know jollof originates in Senegambia region. So if you ever had Chevy Jen, Senegalese, they are the masters. I will give it to them. Other than that, okay. Ghana. Do not eat Nigerian jollof. Yes, I said it in public. Don't at me. Oh, there it is. See, I told you this is what a controversy happens. Nigerian jollof rice hive is about to be on you. Now. I know. It's about to be a whole fight. I know. <laughs> yes, they're about to be on you. Well, uh, Dr. Blade, thank you so much for joining me. I know during this time of year, it can be especially challenging uh, to, you know, get people like you for the podcast because your work is so well thought of. And I certainly um, think very highly of what you do. And I encourage everybody, please go out there and get a copy of her book, One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race. It's phenomenal. So thank you again, just for joining me and for sharing your thoughts and, and always dropping them nuggets, them jewels, them gems. I feel edified by this whole conversation. So thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, everybody. Uh, Dr. Blay is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it, I'm bothered. admit I'm a simpleton I also recognize that just because it ain't for me that doesn't mean it's not cool or awesome or wonderful now I realize the hounds will be unleashed on me for this but fuck it I'm bothered by the Met Gala I'm not bothered by the Met Gala as an event the Met Gala of course took place last week it's a famous ass party with a lot of rich famous ass people ain't nothing wrong with partying ain't nothing wrong with being rich and ain't nothing wrong with being famous but I am the president of the I don't get it club when it comes to the Met Gala. I just don't. A lot of people are really into fashion. I'm not. And the themes and the hoopla that come along with the Met Gala, I'm not. Because my curmudgeonly ass thinks the outfits often ping pong between strange and weird. Major y'all gonna wear this shit once and be done with it energy, which I guess is the point. Now, I'm trying not to sound like a hater or old woman yelling at cloud, but I have as much interest in the Met Gala as I do in severing off my right big toe, which means I'll pass. Those outfits look incredibly uncomfortable, and I saw more than a few of them where I'm not even sure how it was scientifically possible to get in them. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. So does that mean that if you were invited to the Met Gala, you wouldn't go? Hell no. Nah. I'm going to cut out the middle of a trash can, strap it to my body with some suspenders, put a hula hoop on my head and walk the red carpet like I own that joint. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the Friday. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. 
Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or That Music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of seven, five, and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it, and you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute, I was.